2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Debez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord God, we come to you today just reminded of how desperately we all need your grace. God, as we read a passage like this, we are reminded of sin and its consequences and how easily any of us and all of us are prone to wander 
prone to open ourselves up to violating your commands instead of loving our neighbors, hurting our neighbors. So Lord, today we pray that you would use this story that probably for many of us is so familiar. You would use it to remind us of some really foundational truths. Lord, that you would grow in all of us a distaste for sin. That you would grow in all of us a love for righteousness. God, in that perhaps more than anything, you would grow in all of us a love for you. A God who is so faithful and patient and kind and merciful to sinners like us and sinners like David. So God, would you use your holy word today to lead us, to guide us, to shepherd us, and to continue changing us into people that bring you glory. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you this morning. <clears throat> yeah, you can grab a seat. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. A day that has lived in infamy. David, the man after God's own heart, has now become David the adulterer. David the murderer. What we've just read about together here this morning is the decision that forever changed David's life. Because although David has not been perfect up to this point, he has largely shown himself to be a faithful king and a godly man. He's been the, the kind of king that Israel needed and God has blessed him and granted him success as a result of his faithfulness. Here, however, he sins greatly. And from this point forward, his life and his reign are now marked by trouble and conflict, both within his own family and throughout the nation that he rules over. From this day forward, David's reputation as the ideal king will always have an asterisk next to it. And it's captured perfectly for us by the words of 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Wow. What a bummer. What a tragedy. A guy who was doing so well, who was so faithful to the Lord in so many areas of his life over so many decades of his life now has this glaring, glaring mark against his reputation that he'll live with forever. David's, David's actions in this chapter will be the stain that stays. But how did this happen? How, how did David get here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It just seems so shocking to all of us in light of everything we know about David and everything that we've seen from this man up to this point. It's just shocking. But I would submit to you this morning that the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11 were never more shocking to anybody than they were to David himself. Because I can guarantee you with 100% certainty that David did not get up from his siesta on this spring afternoon, and begin walking his rooftop and think to himself, you know what, today I'm choosing violence. I'm going to become a murderer. That was not the case at all. But here we are. The Apostle Paul famously writes this warning to the believers in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10-12. He writes, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, by God's grace, hopefully none of us here this morning are one step away from murder, or even adultery for that matter. But what I want all of us to see here today is that any of us, every one of us might be three or four steps away 
from doing something heinous, from doing something unthinkable, from doing something that will forever tarnish our reputation and have a negative ripple effect out from our lives into the lives of the people around us, even the people we love. And so our sermon title this morning is this, Take Heed Lest You Fall. Now our story here in chapter 11 begins with Israel resuming its war with the Ammonites that we learned about last week from chapter 10. Look at verse 1 and how it begins. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Immediately, right here in verse 1, we see David's first step in the wrong direction. David is most likely here idle and out of place. He's certainly idle, but again, it's most likely that he's also out of place. And this is the first step that David takes in the wrong direction here. Now, the author here points out that the Israelite army under Joab's leadership goes out to battle in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out and fight. Because in the ancient world, armies did not generally fight in the winter months when it was rainy and cold and wet. And so oftentimes it was during the springtime when the weather improved that they would go out and they would conduct their battles. It was better weather and also it was pre-harvest so the men could be away for weeks or months to go on a military campaign. And so here in the spring of this year, Joab leads the army out and they go back and they attack the Ammonites again. And they go against their capital city of Rabbah and they siege the city. The Ammonites are in the city and Joab is there with his troops and the city is under siege. There's an interesting statement in verse 1. It's the statement, of course, it's when kings go out to battle. Now, it could be suggested here that David should have been leading his army. Now, it's true that David did not always lead the army. It's true that other ancient Near Eastern kings did not always lead their army, but it was the standard practice, especially in Israel. The kings generally went out and led their army. So the author here could be subtly pointing out a failure on David's part. This is the time of the year that the kings go out and lead their armies in battle. And if this is the case, then the sentence, but David remained at Jerusalem, has a really ominous ring to it. This is when kings lead their armies out, but David remained at Jerusalem. According to this reading, then, David is not only idle, which we find in verse 2, and we'll talk about in a moment, but he's also out of place. Rather than occupying himself with serving the Lord and leading the army as he generally did, he's idle at his palace in Jerusalem, and in this context, he is prone to temptation. Now, many of us have heard the old adage that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. When we are occupied and we're busy and we're focused on what God has called us to do, we're loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. We're earning a living and providing for our family. We're loving our family. We're serving our church. When we're focused on the things that God has called us to do, we're not sitting ducks for the enemy to pick off. It's usually when we're lazy, unfocused, disengaged from our calling that the enemy exploits our vulnerabilities. Peter famously describes the devil as a lion who is roaming around seeking someone to devour. Who are the people that are disengaged right now? Who are the people that are slacking off? Who are the people that are unfocused on God's call in their life? Aha, there's my target. This is the way the enemy works. If nothing else, though, it's perfectly clear that had David been leading the army against Rabbah, David would have never been tempted by Bathsheba in Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 2. It says, it happened 
Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David wakes up, he's walking and strolling on his rooftop. The palace was up on the hill of Jerusalem, and he's looking down on his city and probably just mindlessly surveying. Perhaps the modern equivalent of just scrolling your social media feeds or browsing Netflix or going down the rabbit hole on YouTube. He's just kind of mindlessly surveying the land, looking about. And wouldn't you know, something catches his eye. He sees a woman bathing herself. And not just any woman. She is a very beautiful woman. She's incredibly attractive. Now, we don't know from the text if David was on his rooftop walking around and he's sort of trying to spy on people and sort of a predator. We don't know that. We also don't know if Bathsheba is is bathing in plain sight of the palace trying to be noticed by the palace. Um, The text does not lead us in that direction. In fact, it's more likely that both of them are just innocently going about their business. David's just looking out at the kingdom, enjoying the late afternoon sunset. Bathsheba is just bathing, which is normal. It's what we do. And we read here that she's purifying herself after her uh, impurity, which is just referring to her menstrual cycle. So she's bathing. She's just going about her business. But nevertheless, he sees her and she is extremely attractive. And family, all of us are from time to time exposed to things that we did not ask for. As Harry Potter put it, I don't go looking for trouble. Trouble usually finds me. And so the question becomes, what do you do with that? Because in that moment when a temptation is before us, every single one of us has a decision to make. What am I going to do in this moment of temptation? When temptation presents itself, here are the two options. We either follow the temptation Or we flee from the temptation. That's it. There's no third option. You either follow it or you flee from it. The Apostle Paul writes these words to a young pastor who is doing ministry in a very sexualized city, the ancient city of Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul writes to young Timothy and he says, So flee youthful passions. Flee, run, get away from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In the story of Joseph found in the book of Genesis, we have one of the most clear illustrations of what that looks like. Uh, Many of you know Joseph's story when he was a young man, probably a teenager. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers. They were jealous of him. And he's taken down to Egypt, and then he's sold off to a very, very powerful Egyptian man named Potiphar. And he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. And over time, God is with Joseph, and God is blessing Joseph. And Joseph is elevated in Potiphar's house to actually be the one who is over all of Potiphar's household, over all of his affairs. The scriptures actually say that Potiphar didn't even have to think about anything in his life, because David managed it all. The scripture also says another thing about Joseph, that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was young, he was ripped, he was handsome. And Potiphar's wife, who was probably also young and very attractive to be married to such a powerful and wealthy man, she had it out for Joseph. And she was a very forward woman. As Joseph would go about his business every day, she would actually just directly say to him, have sex with me, lie with me. And David, or David, Joseph would refuse and he would say no. And here's Genesis 39, 10. It says, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And still she wouldn't give up until one day, famously, Joseph's in the house. He's going about his business. None of the other servants are there. And she actually grabs hold of him and tries to pull him down onto a bed. And in that moment of great temptation, Joseph flees the scene and he runs out of the house and he's so quick as he does it, he actually leaves the the cloak, his outer garment, behind. And of course, she uses that to try to frame him for rape. 
But Joseph flees the temptation. It's there, and he runs away and avoids it. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy. Flee youthful passion. Don't sit there and hesitate. Don't sit there and ponder it. Just run away from it. And Joseph does. But David does the opposite. We're so accustomed to David being the positive example that we should emulate. But here, family, David is the negative example that we should avoid. David follows the temptation. Look at verse 3. The author writes this, And David sent and inquired about the woman. So David sees her. She's bathing and she's attractive. And David wants to know some more information about her. So he sends people to figure out who this woman is to get some background information about her. And here's what the report is. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The moment that someone said she's a married woman, that should have been the end of it. It's a major stop sign, a major red flag. David, she's married. And she's married to one of your loyal soldiers. The seventh commandment is very clear. And all Israelites knew about it. You shall not commit adultery. But it didn't stop David in his tracks. And that should leave all of us wondering, why not? If this is so clear that this would be sin before the Lord, why did it not stop David? Well, may I suggest to you that the problem for David here is this. Smaller compromise prepares you for larger compromise. Now what we see here in the text is that David's next step in the wrong direction is actually a step that he had taken in the past. What do I mean by that? Well, up to this point in David's life, we need to know that David has not been living in sexual holiness. He was already feeding his flesh in this area for years. In Samuel, there have been several places where quick mention was made of David multiplying wives and multiplying concubines, but the author made no comment about it. It was just sort of said in passing. It was just details that were filling in the story. Here's the first example of it in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 42. It says, And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Then in the next verse it says, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. So David there has two wives. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 3 verses 2 through 5, six different women are listed as mothers of David's children. Where did that come from? And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 13 we read this. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. So David was doing what all the other kings would do. David was building alliances through marriage. So a lot of political marriages. And he was building a harem with more and more concubines. Just following the customs of all of the other nations. And also following the example that he had seen from Saul before him. And he's, he's making these compromises. And these, these relationships, wives and concubines, are legal relationships. But they're certainly not godly relationships. And David is making all of these compromises. And so for a long time, he's been indulging his sexual desires. And this pattern in David's life of compromises and compromises that probably nobody was even calling him out for because it was so commonplace in this time. These compromises are preparing David for an even greater compromise when he gets to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The language of verse 3 helps us to see that David was likely planning on doing with Bathsheba what he had done with these other women. Make her a wife or a concubine. Right? He says, go inquire about who she is. Find out her story, and if she's unmarried, then David would have likely said, okay, great, she's going to become a part of my family. But when the information comes back, David realizes he can't do that. Again, she's a married woman. And so now David, 
who's already been preparing himself through years of compromise, takes his sexual sin to new and more wicked places, and he actually becomes an adulterer. It's right there in verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For years, as I mentioned, he'd been failing to live with sexual restraint. He'd grown accustomed to being with numerous women and adding more women to his harem as desire dictated. And so when desire was born for this woman on that day from his rooftop, the desire was uncontrollable. In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 15, we read these words. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So how did David become an adulterer? The answer is this, by growing comfortable with smaller compromises in his life. Similarly, when we begin making compromises in an area of our lives, it desensitizes us and it prepares the soil of your heart and your mind to more easily make larger compromises and enter into even more egregious sin. It would be rare indeed for a Christian to go from being content in their marriage or content in their singleness to just suddenly waking up one morning and going, you know what, I think I'm going to commit adultery today. Far more common is the longer process of a bunch of smaller compromises that grow into bigger and bigger and bigger compromises until finally you wake up and you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, how did I get here? How did I do this? How did I become this person? I never planned on this. I never thought I'd end here. That's certainly how David must have felt. It's allowing ourselves to look at things on our phones and TVs that begin feeding our lust. But then saying, well, it's not explicitly pornographic. And besides, every show nowadays has some junk in it. What am I supposed to do? Just like get rid of Netflix? And then it's watching things that do show full nudity, but you just fast forward those parts. Right? Like, I'm just going to skip over that. We'll just fast forward. No big deal. Until you stop fast-forwarding those parts. And then you start watching those parts. And you're desensitizing your heart. And then you find yourself regularly watching sex scenes that stir your lust and stir your flesh. And, and then maybe you begin following accounts on social media that show nudity regularly. And then you're finding yourself watching pornography. And of course, at first, it's once a month or every other month, and then it's once a week, and then you're watching pornography regularly. But you say things like this, well, at least I'm not actually doing anything with anybody. At least it's just pornography. And then you start flirting at work with that coworker or that person at the gym that you work out near every day. And at first, it's all very innocent. We're just friends. We work together. We're on the same projects. And we're just laughing, and we're just having a good time. And then the flirting goes further and further and further. And Things become less appropriate and you share too much. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you find yourself with your own 2 Samuel chapter 11 and you're looking in the mirror saying, how did I get here? Guys, I've seen it happen to young Christians. And I've seen it happen to older pastors. And I've seen it happen to everybody in between. And so we better sober up. For the love of God and our families and our reputations and everything that every one of us hold dear in our lives, we better sober up. We all better take heed lest we fall. And so the wise believer does not read 2 Samuel chapter 11 indifferently. Huh, that's interesting. Look at David, he fell from grace. No, friends, the wise believer reads the story of 2 Samuel and does some serious spiritual inventory and says, how am I doing? 
We all need to be asking ourselves, what what seemingly smaller compromises am I making right now in my life that could potentially lead to massive, earth-shattering, life-changing failure tomorrow? And whatever we discover, we must cut out of our lives immediately and entirely. I mean, guys, of all people, David, the man after God's own heart. The author of so many of the greatest psalms became an adulterer. We must take heed lest we fall. Verse 4 ended with Bathsheba returning to her home. And David probably thought at that moment that this was the end of it. But in verse 5, David's entire world is rocked. And in verse 5, David is reminded that sin has consequences because news comes back to the palace and it's an announcement. A baby's coming. I'm pregnant, David. Now David's sin can no longer be buried in the past. A moment ago, I said whenever we are faced with temptation, we have a decision to make. We either follow the temptation or we flee from the temptation. And now let's add to that. Whenever we've made the decision to follow temptation into sin, we are now faced with a new decision that we must make. There are two new choices that get set before us. We can either, at that moment, choose to confess our sin or we can choose to conceal our sin. So again, once we've yielded to temptation and we've gone there and we've given in and we've sinned, you're faced with two new uh, decisions or choices rather. Again, it's you can conceal your sin or you can confess it. And here's what the scriptures will tell us about those options. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will what? Obtain mercy. So listen, when we sin and we will sin, you need to know every time you said yes to sin, you can still experience mercy. That's still on the table for you. Just because you've fallen into sin, it does not mean that all hope is lost and only judgment and consequences and misery will follow you all the days of your life. You still have a door you can walk through that will lead to mercy. But it comes through the very challenging decision called confession. David could have owned his sin here. The the, the moment the news came to the palace and it was like, oh my gosh, she's pregnant. I can't cover this. I can't hide this. He could have owned his sin in that moment and he would have begun on a path toward mercy. Yes, there would have still been consequences, but he would have started on a path toward mercy. But he probably told himself the same kinds of things that you tell yourself and I tell myself. Well, people will know what I've done. I can't talk about this. I can't share this with my spouse or with my parents or with my best friends or with my pastor. They'll know what I've done. Or we say things like this. Some people will never forgive me. They'll never forgive me. Or you know what? Everyone will look at me differently. If they only knew what I've done. Friends, all of those things are true. And all of those things are terrible. But do you want to know what's worse than being a known adulterer? Being a known adulterer and murderer. Going back to James chapter 1, verse 15. It says, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. So now you've made that decision, you've sinned. But guess what? Sin when it is fully grown. When we don't cut off its head through confession and we go into concealment mode, it says, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. Family, let me say it to you this way this morning. Confession is your off-ramp on the highway of destruction. 
So you're, you're flying down the highway, and the highway is going toward death. And confession is the off-ramp. It's saying, turn out here, go this way. You can get off. You can go down a different path now. It's your off-ramp. Once you confess your sin, the ride to hell stops. It just pushes pause right there. It's over. You've gotten off. And you're no longer barreling down the highway to hell 100 miles an hour. Again, that does not mean there won't be consequences, but it means that that trip and that trajectory that you're on is over. Confession cuts the power of sin at its root. Don't believe me? Look at David. David chooses to conceal his sin, not confess it. And so he picks up speed on the highway of destruction. And this is the next step in the wrong direction for David. First, he was idle and out of place. Then he was guilty of allowing small compromises that prepared his heart for a large compromise. But, but here, unconfessed sin breeds more sin. Unconfessed sin breeds more sin. We've all experienced this. If you don't own your sin and you won't confess your sin, then you go into management mode and you start covering your sin. And that's going to require lies. That's going to require deception. That's going to require a whole lot of additional sin now to keep that initial sin from coming to the light and from being exposed. And it's really, really hard. And the further that you go down that path, the harder it is now to ever confess because now there's more on the line. There's more to be exposed. There's more people that you're going to hurt. And so you just keep doubling down further and further and further. Again, you're barreling down the highway of destruction. And and now the off-ramps get a lot harder to see. And it gets much more challenging. And this is where David finds himself. He does not confess his sin. And now he goes into concealment mode and he hatches a plan. What's the plan? He recalls Uriah from the battlefield. Hey, Uriah, tell me how things are going out there. Yeah, yeah, real interesting. Okay, now to the real point of why I called you home. He sends Uriah home, followed in verse 8 by a present from the king. Here, I'm going to send you home and he... Gives him a gift basket, like it's his honeymoon or something. Here's some food, bottle of wine, a bath bomb, a Marvin Gaye album. But there's a problem. Uriah doesn't go home. He stays at the palace. He sleeps in the guard barracks with the rest of the servants of David. And when David finds this out, he's like so perplexed and he questions Uriah and look at his response in verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And then look at the last line, as you live king and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, one wonders what David must have been thinking as Uriah responds this way. I mean, David's, he's probably looking at Uriah and he's like, why do you have to be such a good guy? Why do you have to be all noble and honorable right now? Why can't you just be normal? Like you've been away from home for months. Just be normal. This is not the time, Uriah, for being so righteous and caring so much. But this is David's failed cover-up number one. It's his first plan. It blows up in his face. Because had Uriah been a little less honorable, he would have gone home to his wife and everything would be fine. David and Bathsheba could pass this child off as Uriah's, but it doesn't work. Uriah's righteousness here should have been another roadblock for David. I mean, to have your own soldier look you in the eyes and go, I would never, ever, be that disloyal um, to Joab and to all my my other troops out there. I I can't do that. That would be dishonorable. And meanwhile, David here is, is being treacherous behind his back. This should have cut David to the heart. Should have broke him in tears. He should have come to a point of confession, but he didn't. Because again, now he's got to double down on this. He's already going in this direction. So in verse 12, he has another plan. It says this. 
And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. So let's just multiply David's sins here. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Here's failed cover-up number two. He did not go down to his house. So David realizes this this isn't going to work. This plan's not going to work. Uriah's not going to go home. He's just going to stay at my house as long as I keep him here. And so David now realizes he needs a different plan, and it's a more wicked thing than he's thought up to this point. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men in the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Can you imagine being Uriah here? You're you're literally carrying the letter that is your own death sentence back out to the battle. You've just feasted with the king the night before. You're thinking everything's awesome. The king loves me. Life is good. I'm going back out. We're going to go win the battle. But you have no idea that you're carrying your own death warrant. And I was thinking about this, that that Uriah would actually have to wait until he was in heaven to learn of David's treachery. He died thinking everything was fine between him and David. So it was when he gets to heaven that he actually realizes, oh my goodness, this is what my king did to me. That's why I love this meme of Uriah when he gets to heaven. I don't know if you've seen this one before. It just captures it perfectly, I feel like. He gets there and the angels are like, dude, you got no idea. Here's what just happened. And there's Uriah when David arrives. Not a happy man. But David here, he commands Joab to do the unthinkable. Get engaged in a very fierce battle and then call all the other troops back so that Uriah is standing there alone And he gets put to death. And like a good general, Joab does exactly what his king asks. And Uriah is killed. This righteous man is killed in battle. And I think at this moment, any illusions that people might have, and any illusions that those people back then might have had, about David being the ideal king that Israel needed, they were shattered forever. And that's why hundreds of years after David's death, Israel's prophets would point forward to a future son of David, a future king from the line of David who would sit on David's throne and would finally put all that's wrong in the world right. He and he alone would rule over the people of God with perfect justice and perfect righteousness because David was not capable of doing that. As as great of a man as David was, David was a man with a nature just like ours. He had feet of clay, and he was heinous, or he was capable rather of heinous wickedness. David was willing to sacrifice an innocent man's life to cover his own sin, and so the people would need another king, a better king, and God would provide us one in His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this son of David would come to the earth and he would do the exact opposite of what David does here. Rather than sacrificing us to conceal his own sin like David, Jesus would sacrifice himself to cover and bury and remove our sin from us. What an amazing king we have in Jesus. So Joab does the job does what he's asked to do, but he commits a tactical mistake. He's too close to the walls. Other soldiers get killed here, not just Uriah, which is what David wanted. And so we see the circle of people that David's sin is hurting continuing to grow. First it was Bathsheba, 
then it was Uriah, now it's a handful of other men and their families that are all impacted by David's sin. Which reminds all of us that our sin always hurts other people. There is no such thing as a small sin. It destroys our own lives and turns us into people we don't want to be. And it impacts people's lives beyond us. So Joab sends a messenger back. And Joab's a crafty guy too. And he says, listen, when David finds out, because David's a great general himself, when David finds out about my tactical mistake, he's going to get really mad at me. So do it this way. Tell him, yeah, some soldiers died in the attack. But like, put the cherry on top at the end. Say, but Uriah the Hittite's dead. And, and that'll calm David down. And guess what? The plan works perfectly. Look at verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Do you see how callous David is here? Because Uriah's dead, because David's out of his bind, because he's fixed his problem and managed his sin, he couldn't care less that these other men are killed. He couldn't care less that other families in Israel are being impacted. Just tell Joab, it's, you know, these sorts of things happen in battle. No big deal. Move forward, finish the job, take the city. And with that, David's problems are gone. He's covered his tracks. Everything's good. Uriah's out of the way. Now David can marry Bathsheba and they can raise their son together. Check it out. It looks awesome. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Once again, David must have looked out at his problems and thought, they're all behind me. I've successfully fixed things. I've gotten away with it. But Christian, we know better, don't we? Look how verse 27 ends. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So just when David thinks that this whole thing is over and it's behind him, we come to realize that this ordeal is far from over. David may have covered his tracks from all human observers, but nothing he did escaped the notice of Almighty God. God sees his treachery and he's not happy about it. And so in the next chapter, David will be confronted in his sin. There will be greater consequences still for his sin. And, thank God, he will also find mercy to cover his sin. But that's next week. Let's bring today's sermon to a close. 2 Samuel chapter 11 reminds us of how horrible sin is. It wrecks the life of the person who's committing it. And it destroys and damages the lives of those who are sinned against. It's no wonder God is so fiercely opposed to sin. This darkness of chapter 11 should leave all of us with several longings. First, the murder of Uriah, this righteous and just man, reminds us that you and I live in a world where injustice pervades everything. And therefore, it should leave all of us with a longing in our soul for what 2 Peter calls a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're never going to have heaven on earth until Jesus comes back and establishes it for us. And so when we read stories like this and our hearts are crushed for a guy like Uriah and these other families because they're victims of injustice, again, that should produce in us a longing for our coming king who will set everything right. Second, this chapter should leave all of us with a deep longing to flee sin at any cost. It should remind every one of us that toying with sin, even things that seem like small sin, is no laughing matter. 
Nobody is so godly that they are beyond giving into temptation. And nobody is so godly that they can resist the insidious pull that lesser compromises start leading to greater compromises. And therefore, all of us must follow the admonition of Peter when he writes this. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says to us, he says, Christian, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Finally, this chapter should leave all of us longing for a righteousness that is not our own. We are all like David. We have all sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve judgment and death for our sin because of what we've done to other people. But it goes on to say the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve death, but God offers us a free gift. He offers us forgiveness and mercy and grace. He offers us eternal life. David's sin here is about as clear of evidence as you will find anywhere in the pages of Scripture that salvation is by grace through faith and not works of our own. How in the world could this guy who was an adulterer and a murderer be in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? How could this man be called a man after God's own heart? How could this man get to heaven someday and face Uriah? In heaven. How does that all work out? The answer is by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Family, all of us have sinned, but grace is available. That's what this cross is all about. That's why Jesus came. It was to save people like David, and it was to save people like you and me. And through Jesus, God has provided all that we need for all of our sin to be covered for all of time so that we can join Uriah and David and Bathsheba in heaven one day when Christ comes and makes all things new. Amen. Amen.